If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the End of Roman Britain, a History Extra podcast special series. This is episode one. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this latest History Extra podcast series, which is a journey into the end of Roman Britain, with me, David Musgrove. So, what are we talking about? Well, the Roman Emperor, Claudius invaded Britain in the year AD 43, and from then until the early 5th century, Britain, or at least some of it, was part of the Roman Empire. The year AD 410 is generally cited as the traditional date of the end of Roman Britain. But what does that mean, and what actually happened? Was there a power vacuum, violence, and societal collapse? Or did people actually carry on living a characteristically Roman way of life? And was there a wave of incomers from continental Europe, the Anglo-Saxons as they have come to be known by some, soon after the end of Roman rule? Now there has been a lot of discussion of this topic over the past few years, and a lot of new research from many disciplines that's transformed understanding of what might have happened. So my plan in this series is to chat to a range of experts to get a sense of the current thinking on the story of the end of Roman Britain. But first, I'm heading out to a site of a Roman villa, Chedworth, which nestles in a very pretty, very quiet valley in the Cotswold Hills in rural Gloucestershire. It's in the west of England today. It's a National Trust property and open to visitors. And it's also the scene of a recent excavation of a mosaic floor that has some surprising implications for the way we think about the 5th century 
and the end of Roman Britain. I met up with National Trust curator Julie Reynolds to find out more. The first thing I did was to ask her to describe the scene on a bracing but beautiful day in the Cotswolds. So what we can see here today is the remains of one of the grandest Roman villas in the 4th century Roman Britain. Originally here, there was a villa which comprised up to 50 rooms. It would have been magnificent, uh, over two storeys in height, and it would have dominated this landscape as you approached it. It would have towered over everybody. There would have been um, fine dining areas, a heated bathhouse, two heated bathhouses. There would have been kitchens, storerooms, sleeping areas, living spaces, even flushing toilets were on offer here. And it would have been sumptuously decorated, painted plaster, marble, mosaic floors. It was full of bling, it was show, it was a place of grandeur and exuberance. Okay, so this is Roman high society here. Roman high society, a place of competitive dining to, for the owners to show off to the other rich owners in the area. This is what my surplus wealth can buy me. This is the materialisation of that wealth. Chedworth today still retains a little bit of that bling in the form of its fabulous and famous mosaics. So I asked Julie to show me the highlights under the cover of a specially built protective structure. There are 12 mosaics on view in um, Chedworth, at Chedworth Roman Villa. Nearly all the rooms um, were floored with mosaics other than storerooms and the kitchens. And this is the west range of the villa. And we had this cover building erected uh, about 10 years ago, largely to protect the mosaics, which were in, in the rooms and now on display, because they're still in situ. They're still on the original Roman surfaces. And obviously they were built maybe to last 100 years. And we're now 15, 1600 years later. So their care is a delicate process. And the building enables us to create a micro environment to ensure that their protection carries on for future generations. Can we go and have a look? Yes, please do. Okay, right. So we've made it inside the the mosaic room, and there's a there's a, a run of mosaics going down. I don't know, 30, 40 meters down there, maybe. Um, all sorts of things to look at. We've just had a look at the at the dining room, which is one of the the richest places. Tell us what's uh, what we can see there. Yeah. So in this in the West Range, we have a series of rooms. We've got the fine dining room, which we've just had a look at, and that is laid with a mosaic. And it's the mosaic which tells us it was the dining room because the mosaic is in two parts. There's a, a figurative part of the mosaic which has the images of Bacchus, the god of wine and revelry and his attendants around him and then there's a geometric design in the other half of the mosaic and that's where the dining couches would have been laid and so the diners would recline on those couches and they would then look upon the figurative part of the mosaic and it would have encouraged conversation perhaps about wine and revelry but also maybe about one's classical education and it would have been an opportunity to show off both your wealth because you've had this beautiful pavement laid but also your knowledge of classical stories and then as you go through this range we've got we're looking uh, now at the a sort of antechamber waiting room where guests 
who'd come to dine here would have been perhaps greeted with a drink and waited upon until dinner was served. And then as you go down further through the range, that's where we've got the bath suite. So maybe before dinner, maybe after, you may have been able to take a bath and go through the lovely system of Roman bathing where your pores were opened and then closed and you were attended by um, uh, servants who would have washed you and oiled you and massaged you all on the lovely mosaic floors that you can see laid here. And the mosaics were they're made from tiny small stones, which we call tessera. All the colours are maybe four or five different colours, so not a huge palette of colour, all of them made from local stone, apart from the very deep red colour, which is made from terracotta, which would have come from broken tiles, which would have been um, sort of snipped into the little square spaces. What we don't know is whether the mosaics were made on site or whether they were pre-made and then brought in sort of sections to be laid here. We know there are different phases of mosaics at Chedworth and different quality mosaics. There are different themes which we relate to different specialists who you see actually working in this area um, around the Cotswolds as well as in other parts of Rome and Britain. And it used to be thought that there was a school of mosaicists around Corinium, around Roman Sirencester, and it was termed the Roman Corinium School. And that's a slightly nuanced debate now and it looks as if there are themes which you see um, either in figures so there's a famous um, mosaic at Woodchester not that far away which depicts Orpheus and, and you see that in other mosaics in other Roman villas and we've got some similar motifs in uh, mosaics here at Chedworth you also get another um, theme called the Saltire theme theme which also um, we have elements of that here and it, the argument now academics feel that it's not just one school what you see is specialists coming together for projects and they bring almost um, a catalogue of their ideas and their designs and they then um, provide that for the client so it's not necessarily just one school it's probably different teams of craftsmen and specialists coming together on different projects so there's a lot of skill and specialism potentially going into these mosaics, which we'll need to bear in mind later. But who had them made and when are the obvious questions. So I asked Julie whether we have the answers. So dating of them is challenging. Um, the, mosaics, the mosaics in these um, rooms are 4th century. So at Chedworth, we, we call it the golden age of Roman Britain in the 4th century. And Chedworth's mosaics in this particular range are um, an illustration of that. So you're seeing a time of peace, prosperity, stability in Roman Britain. And for a few, for the wealthy, and I say that thinking, you don't want to think that this is a representation of the general population of Roman Britain. But for a few people, that prosperity and that peace enabled them to develop vast sources of wealth. And they were then in that fourth century, they were able to use that surplus wealth to really embrace the material culture of Romanization and Roman Britain. So that's when the mosaics are really flourishing here. And at the, in this West Range, that's when you see the highest quality mosaics. We went outside again and strolled over to the North Range. And I wanted to pick up on a point that Julie finished with there, 
about who the owners of this villa were in its heyday, and particularly about the inequity in wealth that must have existed for them to have been able to afford such lavish floorings. Magnificent though those mosaics are, it also means we're looking at a very unequal society. It's one of the mysteries of Chedworth Roman Villa that the people who lived here, and it's um, a challenge for us because we want to populate it for our visitors. And there are some clues, there is a name on a spoon, a silver spoon, which may have been the owner, but um, we don't have uh, an inscription in any way that tells us this was the um, family that lived here. Um, likewise, we don't know the name of the people who may not have owned the property but would have served here and lived here as well. What we do know is that it would have been somebody of significant wealth, obviously, to be able to um, afford this um, house. It may have been generations of the same family. There are some theories that it may have once had two families in it and then they've come together through um, succession into one unified villa. But um, obviously... They may have held a position of authority, perhaps in Sirencester on the provincial government, or they may have um, been an absentee um, owner who had villas across Roman Britain, maybe across the continent, and they just visited from time to time. You've got huge amounts of wealth in the hands of a very few people. Um, so those people that were generating that wealth, we don't know where the wealth came from, from Chedworth. Usually with a villa, you would have evidence of quite a large estate around it. And that estate would have been producing perhaps uh, foodstuffs, so grain or um, animal products, which would have generated the wealth. There's no, at the moment, we don't have clear evidence for that. It could be that the owner owned quarries and was producing stonework. It could be that their wealth was generated in other estates around um, Roman Britain, as I said, maybe in the continent. And this was just the place that that wealth came from. So the majority of the people in Roman Britain would have been the people who were creating that wealth for one or two rich people. And obviously, that's you've got people in Roman Britain, you've got a very layered society. So in late Roman Britain, we don't have direct evidence for enslaved status. We have no direct evidence for enslaved people at Chedworth, but certainly people would have had... Um, servant status and may have been bonded to the estate in some way it's similar to a sort of serfdom in the medieval system and then you've got people going up through the ranks as well of society so you would have had people who were middle class as well but definitely that wealth in the hands of a few which is interesting when you start to think about the end of Roman Britain. And I know there's been some discussion when it gets to the idea of failed states and collapsed states, that actually when you get the state working primarily for in the interests of a few people who own the wealth and the majority of people, uh, their interests aren't served by the state, that's when you start to get cracks in the system. This isn't a unique example of a villa, is it? There's quite a few in this area. There are, yes. Yes, this area is actually um, full of really quite high-quality large villas, and we're discovering more all the time, particularly using geophysics and aerial reconnaissance, so we don't have to dig them, we just you know, they're, they're discovered um, through the uh, marks they leave in the soil. Um, and it does seem that this particular area was thriving in the 3rd, 4th century of Roman Britain. Um, and that manifestation of that surplus wealth was 
um, being seen in the um, creation of villas. There's not enough detail of those villas excavations to be able to date them specifically, to know which ones were in operation exactly at the same time. But what you can see is the dominance of them on a map when they're, they're, um, they're plotted to say that this area was wealthy. So it's almost like the breadbasket. You, you do wonder whether it was producing an awful lot of foodstuffs that were enabling it to to make that wealth or whether it was seen as a, a place of a stability to come to to live out um, you know the the proceeds the gains that you've managed to to make one one interesting thing that we've talked about recently is how you imagine the people who lived in these villas um, socializing with each other and almost sort of a Jane Austen style sort of you know, um, social scene going on as people were offering dinner parties and uh, weekends away. Now, Julie, uh, listeners can hear that the, the place now is is more home to pheasants mm. than it is to high society. Uh, clearly, at some point, s- stuff stopped here. Yes, yeah. Life life concluded. The villa went out of use. We can see that because the villa is is just uh, low walls. Now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the traditional explanation is that. Um, in the early 5th century, that Roman Britain stopped being considered as a province of the Roman Empire. There were a series of usurpations. Different people were put up to, to be the emperor in Britain. And it was a time of turmoil. Um, none of them were successful. And the emperor, the legitimate emperor of the time, a chap called Honorius, was having a lot of trouble himself in other parts of the Roman Empire, didn't have the resources or, frankly, the inclination, it seems, to repopulate Roman Britain with military forces to protect it and, in essence, said, fend for yourselves. And it was a very messy end to many centuries of Roman occupation. And gradually, you see then Roman Britain becoming outside of the Roman Empire. And in actual fact, uh, it seems it happened quite quickly. So, and if you think about it, so from about 410, the money stops coming in because the army aren't being replenished. And the way that the Roman economy largely worked is money was produced to pay the army. So once the army aren't here, the money's not coming in. Once the money's not coming in, you start to see the specialist craft industries start to fall away. Who's, who's going to pay for these mosaics? And are those skills going to be kept up? You start to see um, the movement from the stable, as we've talked about, the prosperous, the um, security, into a period of subsistence farming, of insecurity, violence, warlords. That gap is filled. The administration of the Roman Empire, the taxation, the um, governance, the law, the military protection bleeds away quickly and in its place comes instability uncertainty and violence and at places like Chedworth Roman Villa what you see is a the this the grandeur that I've talked about the um the, the sort of polite way of it, um, expressing your wealth through mosaics painted plaster rapidly fall away and you see things not being maintained and then you start to see rooms being used for a very different purpose up until very recently, it looked like from the early 5th century that the, within a generation, 
that the rooms start to be used for agricultural uses. You see, we thought hearths were being put on top of mosaics and burnt. You see grain dryers coming in into rooms which were, you, you know, it's a lovely entrance hallway for guests and suddenly there's a grain dryer there. And you just get this sense that the the reason for this villa, the economy that was driving it had fallen away and people were just using the buildings as they could to provide protection for themselves while they were going about their business of trying to stay alive. So archaeologically, in, in what we've seen here, you, uh, the people who've excavated the site, saw evidence that in the what, so the, the, the first years of the fifth century or the, yeah. the, the first quarter, I suppose, of the fifth century, that we're actually seeing something which sort of does correlate with that traditional view of, of a fairly rapid decline um, in 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 the way the society was was working. Yeah, that's right. When actually we've written um, in several places that um, Chedworth was seen as sort of a yeah, microcosm of that experience. So you've got, we found um, tile hearths which had been built onto the mosaics. Other mosaics had fallen into disrepair. Roofs had collapsed in. As I said, we've got evidence for um, hearths and uh, grain being dried and stored in the buildings. And so it, it the story, of, as we've told it up to now, is very much as that national picture is going on particularly in the south of britain you see it being played out here at chedworth so you can imagine if you'd paint more of a picture i suppose if you imagine the family up to that point being able to use their wealth to keep the villa um in a, in a state of high repair and doing the socializing then if you see the ability of that family to create surplus wealth and the economy that surplus wealth drives just falling away and you can see parallels for that. You know, we you know we see it in our own modern world again and again, very quickly. That that's the people who've got the money take it and and run, and then you know the the need to um, also the desire to maintain this way of life here it disappears. So not so much Jane Austen anymore. No, not so much Jane Austen. No, I mean, we're traditionally entering into the dark ages now. Um, I mean, dark in terms of, you know, lack of the archaeological record starts to become harder to read. We don't get the material culture coming through that's easier to understand. And in terms of the records as well, we don't have the we don't have as much historical writing to enable us to put that picture together. But definitely a shift. It's really difficult to actually understand it in real detail. And that's what we, we either use modern parallels and we use the, the gaps, or we, we use what archaeological records we can and archaeological investigation we can to draw that picture up. But what you see, I suppose, is in a very blunt form, is something that is high-end, takes huge amount of maintenance and a huge amount of wealth, fall off a cliff edge in, in the space of a, you know, a couple of decades. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, the reason that I wanted to head over to Chedworth specifically was not only because it's a stunningly beautiful spot that just happens to be half an hour down the road from my house, but more importantly, because a discovery has been made there in the last few years, which adds fuel to a debate that's been going on for quite a while now as to how far that view of a fairly rapid decline in the Roman way of life at the start of the 5th century actually stacks up. Julie took me over to another part of the villa to tell me more. So if we stand here, so we're in the North Range now, and we're in another, we're just looking into another dining room. Um, there's several, there's two rooms either side of it. Um, over the last few years, my colleague Martin, Martin Patworth has been carrying out excavations in the North Range. Partly, if you remember when we were in the West Range, it had a beautiful cover building over it, which was to protect the mosaics. Our intention was to also put a beautiful cover building over the North Range. But before we did that, we needed to understand the archaeology here better and also to understand the condition and the extent of the mosaics which we suspected were here. Or we knew most of them have been recorded beforehand. Julie and I were standing just outside of what's now known as Room 28 at Chedworth Roman Villa. It's not that much to look at now, just a bit of turf flanked by some low stone walls. But because of the results of some preliminary scanning work, Martin Papworth, the National Trust archaeologist whom Julie mentioned just now, knew that there was a mosaic under the grass here in this room. He led an excavation with some willing volunteers to investigate further. So I put in a call to Martin to find out what the original plan was and what happened. What we proposed to do in this room 28, which we knew had a mosaic, what we wanted to do was completely uncover it, clean it really nicely, do a, a laser scan of the surface of it to enable it to be shown off as part of a virtual reality display. So that was 2017. And in that, that year of the research, we also wanted to um, try and um, understand what the floors of the neighbouring rooms were like too. So we, we took up areas in the corners of rooms, just to see what the floor surface were, was like that then. Um, and the room immediately to the west of room 28, um, we found right against the north wall, a line of what they call opus signinum floor. So that's a sort of, um, it's like a pink concrete floor made out of crushed brick and cement. And that... Um, that had almost completely been worn away down to a, a hard core that it was built off. So I dug in that corner where the volunteers were having an exciting time next door cleaning back the mosaic. So I was looking over the wall and seeing them doing this. And I peeled back the layers there and found that beneath this hard core there was a foundation trench. 
which is the cutting you put the wall in, and then you could put you you then build your mosaic and your floor surface up against it. So, and in that foundation trench, I found charcoal, a piece of pottery, and a couple of pieces, small pieces of bone. And I could see that this wall was a later division of the room because it butted up against the north and the south walls of the north range. So it was an inserted wall, which the mosaic had built, been built against, and this opus Sigdine and Flora in room 27 had been built against. So and I did this for several of the rooms, collected the charcoal, and um, a year or so later, when we were ready and got everything together, we sent it off for radiocarbon dating. And, and just to be clear, so the foundation trench on on the logic here of the, stri- uh, the stratigraphy has to be earlier than the mosaics in the room. That's right. So you can imagine, can't you? You dig your trench, you build your wall in the trench, you fill the gaps in the wall with your foundation trench filling. Then you 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 put your mosaic on one side, you put your opus signalium floor on the other, and then you you know you you. Everything must be later than what lies beneath, mustn't it? No. So you've got so you've you've found your mosaic, which you kind of knew was already there because you've done your your survey above ground. Yes. What's what's the what's the mosaic like that's been discovered in room twenty eight? It's um, it's a series of of roundels. So and they alternate between three and four petals, and what they call a, a guilloche knot. So like a a four leaf knot of woven blue, white, and and red mosaic tesserae. So you, you so that it's a sort of alternating pattern of circles. Each of the sac- circles is about half a meter in diameter, and weaving between them is a band of guilloche. So if you, you imagine plaiting. That's what guilloche is. It's like a three-strand mosaic color um, weave um, as deco design. And then within that, there was um, there's a guilloche mat. So an intricate woven design. But as I said previously, the centre of that mosaic, centres of mosaics are nearly always worn away because of, you know, visitor act, people, people walking across the site, and that had gone. So within that room, we'd found areas of burning in the hardcore underneath the mosaic, and we found two hearths there made of reused building material. So one was box flue tiles, um, put together, three of them put together with a, a limestone curb around it, with burning in and around it. And one was a couple of uh, quern stones or grinding stones thrown down with a few tiles. So our theory, our theory that the main north range was probably set up in the second, late second century, we thought that the mosaic was late fourth century, and then typically the Romans left, the Roman society fell apart, and sometime after that, probably in the 5th or 6th century, these two hearths were put in place, and the polite setting of the villa had changed to be a workshop. It's been seen elsewhere in Roman villas. And so we, when we took radiocarbon dates from the north and south wall foundation trenches and from this foundation trench of the wall inserted between room 28 where the mosaic was, room 27 where the opus signum was, that that we took, um, we thought that wall probably went in in the late fourth century, and we thought that these two halves we were expecting to get radiocarbon dates for about um, fifth, sixth, seventh century, something like that. Dark Age, we thought. 
Okay, so these were our ideas. So we, 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 we waited and they came back. Let's take a, a bit of a dramatic pause here because those dates aren't quite what Martin was expecting. It's worth remembering that these radiocarbon dates don't come back quickly. They have to go off to a lab and be analysed. So Martin and his team were hanging on for quite a while. But when they got the results back, well, let's go back to the man himself to hear what he learned. And sure enough, you know, the pottery from the foundation trench of the North and South Wolf Foundation Trench were what we expected. They would fall into a later second, early third century date. And the radiocarbon dates matched that. So tick, that's fine. And then we found that the, the radiocarbon date from the cross wall, the inserted wall, that came back at 424 AD, up to 544 AD. So even at the very lowest edge, that charcoal couldn't have got in there before for the early 5th century, and it was more likely to have been in there in the later 5th century. And as I've described so is that, it... Is that, a bit of a, is that a bit of a jaw drop? It was, yeah. You? I thought, oh, that can't be right. <laughs> you know, that's what you typically would say, and that's what a lot of people have said, but that is... I, I did personally excavate that trench. You know, I know where that stuff came from, and I know what I took up off above it. So I feel quite secure in that. So, But I did have a piece of pottery from the same foundation trench. The pottery um, finds went off for analysis, and they were out during... Um, the early part of 2020, and that came back um, as is late Roman Shelley ware. So that is has to be later than 360, and it's probably probably fifth century. It's the you know it's one of these bits types of pottery that's produced in the very latest and post Roman period. So that matched too, and we sent one of the bone samples off too. And that wasn't quite as discreet as the charcoal, but it was still a very late date, very late 4th to early 5th century or late 5th century. So I, I suppose the um, the question I've got to ask you is is kind of how robust is that dating? Is, for you, is it beyond all doubt that, that this is definitely a mosaic of the 5th of the century or is there is there a chance that uh, that something could not be right there? Yes, I mean, I've, I've worked, I've looked really hard at it from lots of different angles, and uh, and I, I consulted with a various a variety of people um, before sort of going public with it. Um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that that's what it shows. I can't see a way round it. If that date is right, and Martin is clearly convinced, then suddenly we've got a pretty different picture going on here. Rather than that sudden decline in the early 5th century and a withdrawal from Romanness at this once very blingy, high-status villa site, Martin seems to be telling us that actually the residents were still living here, potentially well into the 5th century, and doing something that smacks very much of Romanitas, namely making mosaics. You remember that Julie mentioned earlier that there would have perhaps have been a lot of people involved in planning, construction and laying of mosaics like this. So what does it tell us more broadly about the nature of society that needed to have been in place to allow for this mosaic's very existence? Yes, I mean, you're, you're thinking about an industry with skilled craftsmen. 
And therefore, you're expecting perhaps an urban economy to sustain that and enough people around who want similar services. So to lay a mosaic like that from scratch, not to repair it, but to make it from new, that is um, that says a lot about that part of Gloucestershire near uh, surrounding Sirencester in the in the fifth sixth centuries, doesn't it? It suggests there is, you know, there is a continuity of Romanization at a level that previously we might not have expected. So it's unlikely to be one rogue Roman laying this mosaic, but rather a general continuation of interest in maintaining Roman skills and industry. One question that does seem pertinent, though, is, was this mosaic any good in comparison to those rather fine earlier examples that Judy showed me in the West Range? It's quite a nice mosaic, but it's not as good as, as say, the, the room five in the West Range dining room, for example. Um, there are mistakes in it, not many, um, and it's coarser. Because um, at Chedworth, we work with Steve Koch, who is a mosaic specialist. He, he wrote the book, really. He looked at all the mosaics across Britain. There's this huge, huge number of volumes he's written on this. So, uh, you know, we go to him, and and uh, and he was he initially was quite reluctant to uh, think of a fifth century mosaic. But uh, of all the phasing of the mosaics at Chedworth, he agrees that that one and also the North Range Corridor mosaic are the latest and, in a sense, the crudest, though still quite nicely made. So perhaps these weren't the finest Roman mosaics you're ever going to come across, but they were Roman-style mosaics nevertheless dating to the early to middle 5th century, when you might have expected mosaic-making to be far from the minds of the people of Chedworth. What's Martin's take on what he's dug up? My idea is, um, after working in the West Range, that um, perhaps the, the people living at Chedworth Roman Villa were on reduced, weren't quite as grand as they once were, as you might imagine, but they focused their occupation at the east end of the North Range. That's where their, their best accommodation was. And elsewhere, the site was being turned into more sort of workaday, um, practical storage rooms and farming rooms. Um, and there, the mosaics perhaps were becoming more worn and, and not kept going. Uh, but so the, but the owners lived in this, this, this east end of the North Range where these new mosaics were created. Now, we'll leave it there from Martin and Julie, and that's the end of my trip to Chedworth. But if you are anywhere near Chedworth Roman Villa, I'd recommend a visit. It's a fascinating place, beautiful place, and it's obviously got a, a very interesting story to tell in terms of what happened at the end of Roman Britain. But this podcast series isn't just about Chedworth. That would be very specific. Um, no, Chedworth and the late date mosaic just provides a way into the story, I think. It suggests, as both Julian Martin pointed out, that the traditional narrative of the end of Roman Britain needs a bit more scrutiny, that we need to think more deeply about how Roman power structures waned in Britain and how that impacted on the people living here. Someone in Chedworth was seemingly trying to maintain some vestige of the Roman way of life much later than we would have expected. Um, full disclosure, though, I'm not going to reveal who that person in Chedworth was in this series 
or why they had the mosaic laid. But I am going to talk to a selection of really interesting historians, archaeologists and scientists to find out what the latest thinking is about what was going on across Britain through the 5th century. I thought I'd finish this episode with, with just a few words from one of those experts who will be appearing later in the series. That's Professor David Petz from Durham University for his take on why this Chedworth mosaic story is a good place to start the series. I think it's I think it's really important in the sense that first of all it's just a reminder that things didn't just stop suddenly in AD 410. It's important because it shows that the idea of having a mosaic because a mosaic is more than just a way of having a floor. It, 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 it's a way of again it's a very distinctively kind of Roman Roman art style. So it's a reminder that there's still the ability to make these things, uh, and presumably if if there's a craftsman with the ability to make one mosaic uh, as late as the mid fifth century, he must have been learning his craft and practicing it elsewhere so i think it, that's very important it's, it's that continuation of a of, of a kind of late roman elite lifestyle in, into the mid fifth century i think also it's important because it's a kind of proof of concept in terms of the methodology for picking these things up now in, with our, our radiocarbon kind of techniques particularly the increased use of, of, of bayesian statistics it's, it's, it's a way of kind of refining chronologies it actually shows that potentially we might be able to pick up things as late as kind of mid fifth century because it's, it's a very tricky period to date uh the fifth century I mean, this is one of, the, one of the big challenges of fifth century archaeology for chronology is really really hard so it's a kind of proof of concept that actually we have ways and tools of picking up activity uh, you know, of both Roman type, but also potentially very, very different types of, of activity. We can tie it down chronologically. So this is exciting stuff. Julie Reynolds and Martin Papworth from the National Trust were excited. David Petz is excited. I'm excited. Hopefully you're excited to hear all about it. But the Chedworth discovery, which it must be said does need to be fully published and scrutinised, is just one aspect of a raft of new evidence, interpretation and new science that's coming to light right now about the end of Roman Britain. And that's what I'll be exploring through the series, coming back occasionally to Chedworth, no doubt. In episode two, we're going to take a deeper look into what we know about what life was actually like in late Roman Britain, from the top of society right down to the bottom. And my expert there will be Professor Will Bowden from Nottingham University. So do tune into that. For this episode, though, my thanks go to Julie Reynolds and Martin Papworth and the National Trust for my trip to Chedworth Roman Villa. <laughs>